From the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, this is the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Every week, our fellows chat with leaders in the technology and internet law and policy space on recent developments and exciting topics such as privacy, internet governance, cybersecurity, tech legislation, and more. I'm your host, Rima Musa, and I'm a member of the fourth cohort of Foundry Fellows. The Foundry is a collaborative organization for internet law and policy professionals who are passionate about disruptive innovation. Today, I chatted with Patrick Kios, former fellow at the Foundry and current Deputy Chief of Cyber Policy at the FBI. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Or I should say probably welcome back since this is your second time on. This is round two, and I'm just as excited and happy to be here as uh, the original. So uh, looking forward to our conversation. Great. So we'll just jump right into it. And I think uh, it would be great to hear your sort of origin story and what got you started into this field of tech policy. Sure thing. So I think um, like any true origin story, you got to start where you are uh, to uh, properly trace through the beginning. Uh, So right now, I am a deputy chief of uh, cyber policy at the FBI in their cyber division. Uh, I have uh, a team that I I co-manage and uh, has a pretty expansive portfolio of issues uh, that range from uh, legislative engagements, legislative solutions, um, as well as emerging technology, federal cybersecurity, uh, a whole gambit of things. And... um, Maybe some things people don't think about when you think of uh, the FBI, uh, because there is international uh, components of my work as well, which is fun and exciting, uh, because we are a large organization with a large footprint, and we are um, across the globe to help and to uh, assist and remediate and provide assistance to victims, whether they be individuals or entities or corporations, even governments, as uh, recent events prove and uh, are now public uh, knowledge. So why did I join the FBI and how did I get here? So it it starts uh, way back in the beginning. uh, After law school, uh, I originally thought I was going to be a white-collar prosecutor, Uh, I had come from a stint in investment banking, but in law school, I did an externship and I realized that white collar prosecuting wasn't all that I had uh, thought it would be and would not be a satisfying career. I was very fortuitous in taking a really challenging and thought-provoking class in uh, cybercrime and cybersecurity, my 2L year. And then got involved uh, in the legislative process in uh, legislative solutions. First at the state level, I worked for the Speaker of the House of Maryland. And then I worked for a Senate campaign and um, ultimately as a chief of staff for a Maryland member of the House of Delegates. Um, From there, I got recruited um, into my current organization 
where I was brought in for natural security litigation and then did a variety of things, including uh, uh, serving in our office of general counsel, handling privacy, technology, and um, cutting it investigations. And then I led and established a team for our chief information officer about information technology strategy and uh, progression. And now I'm in cyber division where I uh, focus on cyber operations and investigations. So more of the OT and cutting edge investigative tools, um, as well as uh, coordination and um, cooperation across the globe. So why am I here and, and why did I get there? Because uh, my organization is a premier uh, around the world uh, known for its cyber capabilities and its uh, proficiency. So we are uh, the first call and hopefully the, the best call you have to make after um, a not so great time in your life. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the fun part about cyber um, is being sort of on the front lines and being sort of a, a first responder in the digital world, I suppose. And I guess that's uh, particularly salient in the, the FBI context. So uh, that's great. So you're based in the DC area, like many other Boundary Fellows. Um, and I think it's been really interesting to hear from other fellows, like what their sort of DC story is and you know, sort of what brought you there and what's kept you there. So I'd love to hear that. So I am a longtime DC uh, person, born and raised here, grew up here. So I'm a bit of a unicorn. Uh, I really like the culture, really like the people, and just really like the work. Uh, I'm a, a devoted public servant, and so I, there are few better places to serve the public than DC. And uh, right now in the technology um, strategy, in technology legislation, and just progression, there's no better place to be than right here in the nation's capital, uh, creating laws and creating the solutions to some of the biggest global problems. So I want to pull on uh that thread of being a lifelong public servant. And you, know, you mentioned that uh, you know, white collar prosecution was originally your, uh, your sort of interest and then that changed uh, once you tried it, which I think is the, the story of many attorneys, right? Especially within uh, cyber and tech laws, doing something you know, more traditional, um, and then finding your way into this emerging field of ours. So what got you interested in the public side of this type of work in particular? It is the mission and the satisfaction from doing something with purpose and knowing what you do every day matters and what you do and all your work has a impact and a positive impact that others feel and is noted. Uh, I 
did stints in the private sector before going to law school, and I know what it feels like to uh, work for a paycheck and just the highs and lows of, of what that uh, entails. And I uh, intentionally chose to go into uh, public service realm because I find that more satisfying and it continues to fuel me and motivate me even as I'm working 80, 100 hour weeks and uh, feeling the strain of, of some of the unique burdens of, of being a uh, member of public service in this emerging field with sometimes uh, less staff and, and less support than you would need. Uh, but always knowing that there is a reason and a um, direct correlation between what I do and uh, what it impacts to make things better. Yeah. So what do you think is unique about a career in the public service side of tech policy as opposed to uh, the private sector in its many formats? Uh, we know that there's so many different rabbit holes or uh, pathways that you can go down uh, within the field of tech, you know, cyber in the FBI context being a very, very particular one. Um, but I guess more generally speaking, what's your sort of advice uh, to those who might be interested in, um, in a career in public service in tech policy? My advice is to uh, know your goal and to constantly pursue that and uh, know your rationale while you're, you're doing it. Obviously, there are more financially lucrative fields. There are uh, plenty of firms, plenty of private companies, plenty of think tank and advocacy groups um, that need great young talent. I, I am motivated to the private sector or the public service sector because it really is the unique vantage point of you get to work on these issues and craft the solutions uh, for the right reasons. And that's ultimately for the greater good. And you're not influenced or swayed by uh, particularly particular organization or group that's being advocating for a certain stance on the issue. Um, also within the public sector, there's a huge importance of interagency agreement and USG uh, alignment. So there's many cooks in the kitchen and being able to distinguish and appropriately uh, separate which group is doing what and who is responsible for uh, which part of uh, a federal response or federal support is important to ensure that it is done well, effectively, and has uh, the most return for investment, so to speak. We'll be right back. For Cybersecurity Awareness Month, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry as well as the Women in Cybersecurity Privacy Law and Policy Affiliate, are excited to present CyberCon, the Foundry's first ever virtual cybersecurity convention. 
CyberCon will take place on Friday, October 28th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern and run until 2.30 Eastern. We have a fantastic agenda planned, including a fireside chat with Josephine Wolf, who's an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, on her latest book, Cyber Insurance Policy, Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyber Attacks. You can register for CyberCon now on the Foundry's Eventbrite page, or just check out the show notes for the link. So, shifting gears a little bit, when you were a Foundry Fellow, you were the president of your class, and that was back uh, in the second class of Fellows, um, so 2017 to 2019, right? Correct. Okay. So, how was your experience? What brought you to the Foundry originally, and what was it like back then? It's, it's changed a lot uh, in the past few years, as we all have experienced, uh, you know, casual pandemic and whatnot. It has changed a lot, and for the better, I, I should add, uh, not because of my doing, but because of this, the successive leadership and ideas and just novel projects that have been taken on uh, since my time at the helm. Uh, I was the second president of the second cohort, so the first group really got the foundry off the ground, and the, the second class continued uh, that upward momentum. So we expanded from uh, a group of 45 to almost 100, which was a huge growth opportunity that we achieved. Also, we um, expanded out of certain metropolitan areas. So it, the first class was heavily um, situated in D.C., San Francisco, and New York City. And in the second class, we uh, took an international perspective. We uh, got a lot of people who are situated all across the globe. Uh, in addition to that, we expanded some of our speaker series and uh, partnership engagements in, in a way that had not been uh, yet thought of in the first class just because they were uh, the startup trying to make everything work and get everything in line. And uh, that has been a huge change and we, the second group ended just before the pandemic really hit and things went remotely. So it's been really interesting to see how the foundry has moved and evolved um, in light of additional remote opportunities, lecturing series, and the ability for everyone to get together um, on uh, video conferencing and, and calls like this um, when you're not necessarily in the same city. Yeah, definitely a silver lining, I would say. And I guess back then in, uh, in the previous iterations of the Foundry, was there more of an emphasis on in-person get-togethers and whatnot? Oh, yes. Almost exclusively. We had not really considered uh, virtual calls. 
other than uh, the board getting together to make uh, consensus decisions, it really was a physical interactive group. Um, so there was a lot of location-based um, events as, as well as engagements, um, which made it hard to uh, make sure that everyone in the foundry was uh, feeling heard and, and participating at same rates. And so as a result, we had uh, areas of strength in, in D.C. and in San Francisco uh, because we just had the most members there. Also, some of our events just required uh, people to be in the same city. So things like the hackathon, which is a great success of the third class, was was not possible uh, just because we didn't have the resources and putting something together that required people traveling uh, and and working uh and just collaborating uh, like that is is not possible, but is enabled by uh, video capabilities right now, which is exciting and cool and uh, really th thrilling to see how it's been embraced and has uh, made uh, the foundry better and uh, been able to expand out to new events and just new ways of, of growing the network. Yeah, it's no, it's really exciting. And I mean, the next iteration of the hackathon, I think round three will be happening in just, just a little bit now. So it's exciting to see how that's been enabled. Just a few weeks away and can't wait to see some of the ideas and great products and uh, just uh, camaraderie that is generated by the, the third annual Foundry Policy Hackathon. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> we would never do a shameless plug on, on this show. Never. No, we plug it every episode. <laughs> but, um, but no, appreciate, appreciate the plug. Well, happy sure. to stay on brand. So you're on the front lines. You're sort of a cyber first responder, so to speak. What issues in cyber on the horizon do you think are the most concerning, um, most on the rise, or most underestimated? Uh, I will answer that very broad question with an uh, even broader statement. Uh, I, I think that... The biggest shift in this kind of epoch of, of the uh, global connected world is the blurring between uh, nation state actors and uh, certain criminal activities and criminal groups. And there's some theories out there that the connected world, um, the electronically connected world, has... Uh, different iterations and it goes in cycles um, normally around the two to three year um, time frame and it seems that this uh, era is is now uh, kind of been reset by the uh, Russian Ukraine conflict and war 
and is now where is the the line between a state actor and a state enabled state supported uh, and state sponsored actor and that's the thing that I think is going to evolve and uh, stand out during this time frame uh, because when you have state aligned actors but of cyber criminals um, their activities and the ramification of some of their uh, malicious uh, targeting or, or um, cyber uh, engagements where is that dry line and where do you uh, start drawing a connection and culpability for that action fascinating yeah and I mean, these issues around um, attribution and the sort of larger geopolitical landscape around cyber are, uh, are very complex and really interesting to dive into. And I think there's an interesting connection there from the human side of people who are studying, you know, national security foreign policy, uh, international conflict, and how those voices might really contribute um, to study of these issues. So uh, thank you for your your insight there with your um, broad answer to a, a broader question. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but thank you. Awesome. So one of my favorite questions to ask fellows is what you're reading or listening to right now. So I am reading a few things. I uh, have several course books because uh, I'm continuing my education with an LLM in technology law. And so one of the books that I'm reading the most is, uh, or rereading, should I say, is the Talon Manual. Um, for reasons we just discussed, uh, but also reading some of the classics and um, some lighthearted things that take my mind off of uh, subject matter. So uh, All the Light We Cannot See is uh, a, a novel that I just finished up a few months ago and really enjoyed. Uh, Dor, he, he is an excellent writer who uh, it's good light reading that makes you think but doesn't make you uh doesn't tax your energy so it's refreshing in that regard and highly recommend it's a good reminder that uh that reading for pleasure doesn't have to be uh lost in these crazy busy times that we're living in i think i'm you know in law school right now and um, the concept of like just opening a non-law related book is like what? <laughs> um, but a good reminder that you know you need that to, to kind of refresh, um, especially if reading is is a passion. So it is, and the Talon Manual is definitely light reading. Before we finish up. Uh, I'd love to know, what are you looking forward to? Are there any exciting um, opportunities or events sort of on the horizon that you're looking towards? 
personally, I am looking to forward to the end of uh, semester and uh, my classes so I can sleep again. Uh, also, always looking forward to Thanksgiving, one of my favorite holidays of the year. Um, but uh, more closer uh, to home and more closer on the calendar, I'm looking forward to uh, DC FinTech Week, which is uh, next week sponsored by uh, my current institution, Georgetown University, uh, which is bringing together industry, government, uh, and, and thought leaders uh, to examine digital apps assets and really start to think through uh, the future of what will work, uh, what won't work in terms of policy, regulation, enforcement, and enablement. Awesome. Well, that'll be happening probably around the same time that this uh, that this episode goes up. So to anyone listening, check it out uh, and see if you can make maybe the tail end. Um, but that's, that's exciting. And is it a fully in-person event? It is in person with a hybrid option to connect virtually. So if this podcast does go out in time, uh, check it out and uh, make it out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat, Patrick. It was lovely to talk to you. And it's a pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, putting up with us and hearing us out for the past couple minutes. Hearing our... Uh, not so subtle foundry plugs. That's for sure. Hey, I think we did a pretty good job of sneaking them in. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and fellow highlight with former president of the foundry, Patrick Kios. And we'll catch you next time. Huge thank you to Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, for all their help in making this episode happen. <laughs>